So <clears throat> we're in this series, and by way of introduction, if you haven't been here, you got your Bible open to the biggest book in your Bible. Uh, we have said this way, the book of Psalms, big song book, and I like to think of it this way, it's God's playlist for your life. And so we think that it's good for us to go back to that playlist because life can kind of shout a lot of negative messaging. It can burn us out, bum us out, whatever it might be. So we need this playlist that's constantly playing in our hearts and our heads. So what we decided to do over five-week time period is say, hey, what if we lean into one psalm, just one psalm for five weeks, and we allowed that to kind of be this continual playlist in the middle of a life that's kind of raw and edgy, hard sometimes, and see what this psalm might do to kind of build into our lives a rhythm that will help us navigate life. And so each week we, we start it the same way. I think it'd be great just to start this way again this week. We've read it out loud together. So I'd love for you to join me. We'll throw it on the screen. Here we go. Ready? The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. You guys sounded great. That was awesome, right? I didn't do that in any other services. I stopped and I loved hearing you guys say it. Here's what I know, very familiar. Some of you are like, man, I've heard that a gazillion times. Some of you have plaques with it. Some of you haven't memorized. And we said because it's so familiar, it's dangerous. It's dangerous because it can become so familiar that we never explore what the meaning is, the power of it is, the potency of that psalm. And, and not only that, but it is a psalm that I think is one of the most distorted psalms. It's misapplied and misappropriated. I think there's people that apply it universally as though it applies to all people in all situations of life. And quite frankly, it doesn't. I said it this way, you'll never understand Psalm 23. And it's a powerful, familiar psalm. We love that psalm, but you'll never understand it until you understand certain things. First thing we've got to understand is we're all like sheep. First week we said this. That's not flattering, right? Because sheep aren't the brightest of creatures, yet we looked at our own lives and said, hey, we are all like sheep. Sometimes we're not the brightest. Sheep are dirty. We're dirty. Can't get ourselves clean. Sheep don't have great perspective. We're all like sheep. When we honestly look at our lives and say, yep, we're like sheep. But here's what we said. Because we're like sheep, stay with me on this, we need a shepherd. You and I need a shepherd. That's why Psalm 23 is attractive to so many people. Yes, the Lord is my shepherd, right? That's my psalm. But here's what left some of you unsettled, and I'm okay with it if you're okay with it. The Lord is not everybody's shepherd. He just isn't. He wants to be. He wants to be your shepherd. He wants to be my shepherd, but the Lord is not everybody's shepherd. In fact, the Lord will never be your shepherd until first you realize the shepherd became your lamb. And that's interesting, right? Because the Bible says it this way, and that, that, that literally Jesus is the good shepherd who voluntarily gave his life as the lamb who was killed in our place. He died for my sins. So you'll never understand Psalm 23 until you understand Psalm 22, the psalm right in front of it, which talks about the fact Jesus took my place on the cross. He paid the penalty for my sin. And then we said this, the Lord is my shepherd is great, but the Lord is not my shepherd until I make the shepherd my Lord right? He wants control of my life. And, and it's not like, oh, this militant, he wants to just make me do what he wants. Here, here's the deal. He's like, I know you better than you know yourself. 
Like, I love you more than you can imagine right now. I know what you don't know. I see what you don't see. I want, I want control of your life because I love you. And so the Lord is my shepherd. And when I embrace that, acknowledge that, say yes to Jesus, we said, all of a sudden the Lord is my shepherd. And then the rest of the psalm begins to pop. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. Why? Because life can get busy and my shepherd wants my body to be rested. And then it says he refreshes and restores my soul. Why does he say that? Because my shepherd, Jesus, knows that I can become exhausted carrying around the weight of my guilt and grudges. And he's like, come to me. I, I, I will restore your soul. The very thing that's sucking the life out of you, guilt and grudges, I can refresh and restore. And then he says this, I'm going to guide or lead you along the paths of righteousness for my name's sake. He's like, in a world where there's all kinds of decisions to be made, he said, trust me, I'll be your leader. He says, I'll be the shepherd. I want your mind to be renewed. I want you to, to trust what I have to say even when you don't understand it. Then last week, we jumped in and we just looked at one verse, verse four, and we said the whole psalm changes. It says, even though, because I will, even though, because I will, walk through dark valleys. You see, you will, I will, you have, I will, I have. We all walk through dark valleys. They're inevitable, they're unpredictable. You don't schedule them and they come in different sizes and shapes. But here's what he said, even though I will walk through dark valleys, I'm not gonna fear evil. Why? How do I do that? He says, here's the deal, because I know you are with me. It's in the darkest of valleys that intimacy with the shepherd, Jesus, is deepened. That's where all of a sudden in the psalm, he, starts, he stops talking about God, and he starts talking to God. It's interesting. And he says, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. See, it's in the valleys of our life where all of a sudden my faith is built and hope becomes real. I can tell you this, you know this, that I can talk about faith and hope all day long on the mountaintop. Faith and hope, but it's in the valley where they become real. In the valley where all of a sudden it's the nitty-gritty where faith is refined and built. This morning, here's what I want to do. One verse. Can we do that? One verse this morning. But I think, look here a second, I want to see your eyes when I say this. I think this verse is rich. It's going to take all of our time. In fact, you probably have noticed that it's going to take more than our time. I keep going over time, okay? But here's the deal. Ready? I'm going to just be honest with you. Today's not an easy talk. Can we deal with that? that? I don't think this is a piece of cake talk that we're going to have today. In fact, I'm sure it isn't. I've been talking to people all morning. I think for some of you, the talk we're going to have is going to lean into you in ways that are hard. For some of you, it'll leave you unsettled. For some of you, it'll dredge up stuff. But, but, but here's the deal. I am committed. Okay, I want to I see your eyes when I say this. I'm committed to telling the truth in an atmosphere of grace. So, so that's the commitment. I want to tell the truth in an atmosphere of grace. Here's what he says. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with all. My cup overflows. Here's what he's saying. In short, the Lord who is my shepherd, right, who provides for me, he leads me, he protects me, he's with me in the darkest of valleys. He changes kind of the picture and he says that shepherd is now the host. He hosts me. He prepares, he sets a table for me. So here's the deal. The shepherd is now the host and the host does all the work. Let me say that again. You need to remember that. The shepherd is now the host and the host does all the work. The host sets the table. He sets and prepares this table for me. But here's what's interesting. He sets or prepares the table before me in the presence of a very specific audience. 
He says, he sets the table before me in the presence of my, say it out loud. Say it again. One more time, good measure. Enemies. Can we just admit something? I want you to write it down in your notes. Some people hurt me, hate me, and have it out for me. Some people hurt me. Some people hate me. And there are some people who just downright have it out for me. Here's what I know. You already know this. If you lived enough life, you already know this to be true. That some of our greatest stress, irritation, frustration, disappointment, some of our deepest and greatest hurts come as the result of other people. Is there anybody tracking with me? It's just true. That's just real. That's just true life. And, and, and so he says, in the presence of my enemies, I set this table before you. And the fact of the matter is there are people who hurt us. You're beginning to think of people. There are people who hate us. Right now, there's people in your life who can't stand you. And if you told the truth, right? No raise of hands. But if you told the truth, you can't stand them either. There are people in your life who hurt you. And some of them hurt you intentionally on purpose. There are other people who hurt you and they do it accidentally, unintentionally. There are some people who hurt you by what they do and what they say. Listen close. There are other people and they hurt you not by what they do and what they say, but by what they don't say and what they don't do. You see, I can already tell you're tracking with me because in your mind's eye right now, there are people that come to your mind. And you begin to think about the people in your life who've hurt you. Maybe they're hurting you right now. You begin to think about the people in your life who have harassed you, maybe who even have told you they hate you, and maybe who their actions kind of prove out the point that they have it out for you. Chances are in a room this size, I bet this is true, there are some of you that right now have people that are just downright against you. Some of you have people that are making your life purposefully difficult. Some people in this room have people right now that are taking them to court. They're bent on your demise. They're saying things about you that aren't true. They're killing your reputation. They're stepping on your trust. They're turning other people against you. Some of you in this room have people who are withholding things from you, building alliances against you, spreading gossip about you. And some of you have people in this room right now who who are taking advantage of you. And you begin to think of people in your life. And for some of you, the people that come to your mind, for some of you, when you think about people who hurt you, have it out for you, and hate you, unfortunately, for some of you, you begin to think of your spouse. Some of you think of your kids. Some of you think of your parents. For some of you, you think of your ex. Others of you think of maybe a friend, somebody who was a friend. Heck, you might be thinking of somebody in the room right now. I don't know. Here's what I know. Here's what I know. Think about this. The more, listen to this, the more meaningful the relationship, the more potential to hurt. Some of you are shaking your head because you know it to be true. You've experienced it. The more meaningful the relationship, the more potential that relationship has to hurt you. You know that I don't even have to make that case, right? I can tell you this, in, in, in all the people who've been in this building today, there is no one, absolutely no one, who can come even a, a fraction as close to hurting me as much as Jennifer Gregory can. It's the most meaningful relationship I have in this church is with my wife, and she has the most potential to hurt me. You see, here's the deal. All of us have been, maybe are hurt, Some of us have people who sure hate us, have it out for us, and so we find all kinds of ways to deal with it, right? And and there's some of us in this room right now, and I think the reason today is going to touch a chord with you is because we find all kinds of ways to deal with it that aren't helpful, wise, beneficial, and we keep struggling with it. It's like this big cycle. 
that we keep running back through. There's different ways we deal with the hurt and the hate. One of the ways we deal with it, and you might be able to identify with this, some of us in the room, we're runners. We run from it, right? And so here's what we think to ourselves. Those of us in the room that run from it, we think to ourselves, well, I got the Clint Eastwood approach. You know, some of us, we run from it by denying it. It don't bother me, right? Water off duck's back, doesn't phase me, no big deal. We sweep it under the carpet, right? And we buy this lie, and can I just break the myth right now? We buy this lie, and here's the lie. The lie is this, time heals all wounds. How many of you heard that before? Yeah. Can I just tell you something? It doesn't. (laughs) You know that by experience. You know that emotionally, spiritually, and I will tell you this, our own physical bodies bear that out. Let me give you an illustration. I know that by experience physically. When I was coaching football, at the end of the football season, we had a big old celebration party for our kids that played football for us. And so what we decided to do is have a cookout and we played flag football. I should have known better, but I said, I'm going to play with them, right? I had to coach them all year. I'm going to show them who's boss now, right? I'm going to play with them, right? And so I got out there. We're wearing flags. You wear, if you've never seen flag football, you wear a flag here. You pull the flag. That's how you know you're down. And so I had a kid running the football this way. I was on the other team. I'm running this way, and so I'm going to grab his flag. And so I reached out to grab his flag. The only problem was he was wearing blue jeans. You say, what's the problem with that? Well, his blue jeans had belt loops. And my finger, I don't know how it happened. I'm running full force this way, found his belt loop, and this finger right here got caught in his belt loop as he ran that way. Now, I heard and felt this like that. And all of a sudden, I'm like, like that, right? And I looked down, and I had, like, my finger didn't swell, but my, my hand did. Like, I got this big ball in my hand. I'm like, wow, that's weird, right? So, man, I'm like, shake that thing off and whatever, and kind of get some ice on it, went home. And I said, man, Jen, I really screwed my finger up. She, what do you think she said to me? She said, Dan, you need to what? Go to the doctor. I said, what? Nah, right? Some of you guys are with me. I'm like, you know something? I'm going to ice it, see how it works out, see what happens, right? So three months went by, and guess what? Ah, that thing weren't no better. And she's like, Dan, you need to go to the doctor. And I said, nah, I just need to give a little more time. I'm a little older. It takes a little longer to heal, but time will heal all wounds, right? (laughs) Six months go by, eight months go by, nine months go by. It got worse and worse. A year goes by. My wife says to me, what? You need to go to the doctor, all I heard was wah, 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 right? I mean, that's what I heard. I'm like, time's going to heal it. It's going to be better. About a year and a half goes by, and I'm like, you know something? That doggone thing hurts. And it was messing up my football game a little bit, right? So I'm like, I better go get it figured out. Went to the doctor, and he said, man, I'm going to tell you what happened. When you got your finger caught in this belt loop, all of your ligaments tore, and that's what is balled up down here in your hand right now. I'm like, really? I said, what are we going to do about that? And he said, we're going to have to do surgery. We did surgery. I came out of the surgery, and I said, how'd it go? He said, surgery went great, but I got some bad news. And I said, what's the bad news? He said, you're not going to ever be able to bend that knuckle. I can't bend that knuckle, he said, ever again in your entire life. I said, why is that? He said, you waited too long (laughs) to come in. You see, I thought time is going to heal this wound. It's going to get better, and it just got worse and worse and worse, and then it became irreparable. Some of us have bought that. I know that about my finger. Sounds funny. Sounds like an interesting story. I can't bend my finger. Some of you, your heart gets harder and harder and harder and harder the longer you run. 
Psalm 39, we'll throw it on the screen, I think, says this, but as I stood there in silence, not even speaking of good things, the turmoil within me grew worse. Some of you can resonate with this. The more I thought about it, the hotter I got, igniting a fire of words. Some of us run, run from it by, by simply escaping it, and so that's why we get involved in, in all kinds of hobbies, and we're just going to escape it and forget it. Or some, that's how some of us get addicted. We anesthetize the pain, and so all of a sudden, we've got alcohol and drugs kind of feeding something in us because we don't want to deal with a hurt. Here's what I know. You ought to write this down. Running from my hurt only makes it worse. Running from my hurt only makes it worse. Some of us run from it. Some of us in the room, we're not runners. What we do is we rehearse it. We talked about this a few weeks ago. We rehearse it, so we go over it again and again in our head. In fact, some of us, every time we tell it, it gets worse and worse, right? And, and what we do is we hold a grudge because that person hurt us. And the reason we hold grudges, if we're honest, it, it just feels like we have power when we hold the grudge. Like if I let go of the grudge, I might lose power. And yet the problem with rehearsing it, and some of us are there, we're not runners, we rehearse it. The problem with rehearsing it is this. Rehearsing it contaminates my attitude. It changes me. I become somebody different. Hebrews chapter 12 says something interesting. It says, look after each other so that none of you fails to receive the grace of God. Watch out that no, look at this, poisonous root of bitterness grows up to trouble you, corrupting many. Here's the deal. Some of us have rehearsed the hurt and the hate and things people have done to us so long that what happens is this poisonous root begins to grow up inside of us, and it affects us, and it changes us. I'm not, I'm not, picking you just need to identify yourself but for some of us if we really were honest and looked at our own life it it changes us and it changes everything about us and it contaminates our attitude and some of us that's where we're at we've been poisoned by our own bitterness and for some of us the way it comes out is this we become the perpetual victim in every situation I'm not saying we weren't hurt. I'm just saying that we become the perpetual victim. And so we, we say things like, well, you know, if my dad had been and everything and everything I encounter in life is lived through the lens of somebody who hurt me, I become this perpetual victim. For others of us, you know what happens? Here's how we know a poisonous root of bitterness has grown inside of us. We begin to treat everybody like the one person who hurt us. Stay with me. I want to be tender, but I want to tell the truth. I want to be tender about this. This is what happens when women become harsh with all men and about all men because they've been mistreated by a man. This is what happens when parents scream and yell at their kids and hate to see kids having fun because somebody robbed them of their childhood and the opportunity to have fun. You tracking with me? This is what happens when I can't stand authority. And everybody in authority, I'm just going to kind of bow up because somebody, one person in authority, abused their authority. This is what happens when I become skeptical and don't like and disassociate from church because a church experience that I had hurt me. You see, here's what I know. This, This poisonous root of bitterness, it begins to grow inside of me and it contaminates my attitude, it contaminates my heart, and it becomes the lens through which I look at life. Running from it makes it worse. Rehearsing it contaminates my attitude. I want you to write this down. There's another thing we do, and that's this. Revenge gives my hurt the power to control me. Revenge gives my hurt the power to control me. I found out through a little research, revenge has become big business. 
There's actually a book that you can Google called The Big Book of Revenge. Here's what it says on the tagline. 200 Dirty Tricks for Those Who Are Serious About Getting Even. You can go online and buy it today. I don't recommend it, by the way. In the introduction, here's what it says. Listen close to the words. More than 200, ready? More than 200 utterly satisfying, more than 200 utterly satisfying ways to get revenge on the fatheads who make life that little bit less worth living every time they get out of bed. You see, here's the problem with revenge. You can hear it even in what they're saying. Revenge doesn't help. In fact, revenge, you know, listen, revenge makes me a little more like the person who hurt me, begins to control me. It's why Paul says this in Romans 12. We'll throw it on the screen. He says, never pay back evil with more evil. He says, do things in such a way that everyone you can see that you're honorable. Do all that you can to live in peace with everyone. Dear friends, never take revenge. Leave that to the righteous anger of God, for the scriptures say, I will take revenge, I will pay them back, says the Lord. Now look here a second, because I need to show you something else that comes after this in a minute. He has the audacity then to say something at the very tail end of this that is mind-blowing. Look at what he says next. He says, beginning in verse 20, he says, instead, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they're thirsty, who? Your enemies. Who's that? The people you thought of earlier. The people who hurt you, hate you, and have it out for you. Give them something to drink. In doing this, you'll heap burning coals of shame on their head. Don't let evil conquer or control you, but conquer evil by doing good. Can we just be real and raw? Because the deal is you shouldn't read the Bible as though it's some sort of fairy tale and it's like, ooh, you know, that's raw. That's gritty. Because if I read that right, and you ought to read the Bible this way, like, he wants me to what? He wants me to feed who? I'll feed them, all right. He wants me to be kind to who? For what? Does he know? What's interesting is is that Paul had the audacity to say that, but there was this guy, I don't know if you've ever heard of him, his name's Jesus. And he had the audacity to say this in Matthew 5. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I, Jesus, tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You got to be kidding me, Dan. Like, that sounds good, looks good on a plaque, but you put that smack dab in the middle of real life and the people I'm thinking about. If I'm just being real, and you ought to be, God can handle that. If you're just being real, and those people who hurt you, who hate you, who have it out for you, came to your mind, what you're thinking right now is that there ain't no way I can do that. There ain't no way. I I hear it all the time. There ain't no way I can do that. Listen, listen close. I don't want to mumble. And I agree. There ain't no way you can do it. So stop. Running isn't working. Rehearsing it, it's changing you. Everybody around you can see it. You've become sarcastic. You've become mean. You've become something you weren't. This poisonous root of bitterness is just growing in you. In revenge, you've lost control. 
and the evil now controls you. You can't do this. You cannot do this on your own. The only way you can do this is for you to jump into Psalm 23, verse 5, and say, what is he saying? When he says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Look here a second. I'm going to tell you something. Psalm 23 gets read at funerals all the time. I think that's awesome. Keep reading it at funerals. But Psalm 23 was not written so that we could read it at funerals, feel good about it, feel warm and fuzzy. That's not why it was written. It is a psalm written for the grittiness, the rawness, the realness of life. And in the middle of the grit and the rawness of your life, he says, you, shepherd, Jesus, prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. You put this table out and you prepare it in the presence of my enemies. And here's what he says in the New Living Translation. He says, you prepare not just a table. You don't just set the places. But he says in the New Living Translation, you prepare a feast for me. You, you literally provide this victory dinner. That this table isn't some sterile setting, but it is full. It is full of all kinds of stuff, and we're having a feast. And the picture is this. You can't miss this. It's this victory celebration that Jesus, shepherd, Lord, the one who walks through the dark valleys, he prepares, he sets, he does all the work. He puts out the the, the stuff on the table. He sets the table. He's the one who makes the invitation. He says, I, Dan, I have prepared a table and it is in the presence of that person who hurts you, that person who hates you, those people who have it out for you. So what in the world does Psalm 23, verse 5, have to do with me and all those people? Listen close. This morning... That shepherd, that Jesus is saying, you already know running makes it worse. You know that. You already know rehearsing it, it's changed you. You're mean. You're sarcastic. Your fuse is short. And revenge, evil wins the day. The shepherd comes to us and he says, if you want freedom from that very thing that's changing you, has power over you, The shepherd says, come and sit with me at my table. And when you do, here's what he says. I want you to write this down. He says, Dan, sit down and let me settle your score. He says, Dan, I want you to focus here. You're focused here. Those people hate me. Those people hurt me. Those people have it out for me. He says, sit down here at the table. I prepared a table. If you'll sit down here, you focus on me. You have your attention on the table that I prepared. It's right in the presence of your enemies. He says, if you'll draw your attention here, I will, as your shepherd, as your Lord, as your Savior, settle the score. What's he saying? I'm going I'm to tell you guys something. I've never been more serious than I am right now. What I'm going to say, the rest of this message won't make any sense if you don't get what I'm getting ready to say. Because I know this is hard. But it's only sitting at his table that I, you, we can experience the freedom of forgiveness. This is so key, guys. Why does he encourage us to sit in the presence of our enemies? Because I got to sit here and the first thing I got to realize that the very fact that I get to sit at this table 
table means that I get to experience something from the one on the other side of the table that I don't deserve, I didn't earn, I had nothing to do with. The fact that I sit here reminds me of something. You might not have known this, that you, that me, that we are God's enemies. Like, what? Like, I grew up going to church, Dan, right? I get you. But here's what Romans chapter 5 says. Look what it says. It says, since we now have been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's, say it out loud. Say it again. One more time. Because that's what it says. We were reconciled to him through the death of his son. How much more having been reconciled shall we be saved through his life? Here's the deal. When I sit at the table, the very first thing that I got to come to grips with is that he, the one across the table that did all of this, that laid out this spread, he... The one who prepared the table for me settled my score at the cross. I was an enemy. The only way I can sit here now as a son is because of what he did. The only way I can sit here as someone who's forgiven is because he, the one across the table for me, was forsaken. The only way I can sit here, have any right to sit here as, as, as justified is because he was condemned. The only way I get to sit here and, and take part in the blessing is, has nothing to do with anything I did, has everything to do with what he did and what he laid out. And he simply says, I want you to come. Say yes and enjoy. But it's not fair. It's not. Well, Jesus, like, is this carrying? Should I bring something? No. You'll mess it up. Like, I, I laid out the table. And the only way for me to go from being an enemy of God to a son, literally sitting at the table as a son, is to recognize, experience the freedom of forgiveness that comes by saying yes to his invitation. And here's what happens. I go from being an enemy to being a son, and I sit at a table in the presence of my greatest enemy. You know what your greatest enemy is today? It's Satan. It's sin. It's death. That's why Colossians says this. Colossians chapter 2, you were dead. I was dead. We all were dead because of our sins, because of the sinful nature that wasn't cut away yet. Then God made us alive with Christ, for he forgave all our sins. He canceled the record of the charges against us. That's forgiveness. <laughs> Took it away by nailing it to the cross. He absorbed my hurt. Why was he nailed to the cross? What did he do? Nothing. What I, everything. <laughs> In this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. Literally, Satan looks on and he sees those who've said yes to Jesus, our greatest enemy, and we enjoy the beauty and the bounty and the blessing of the gospel. And, and we get to sit at a victory meal and say, you've been defeated. You have been defeated. I get to enjoy this. And he wants to say, but you know how bad you were. You know what you've done. And it's like, I sit here 
because of what Jesus did for me. Listen, this is the only way I will ever have the freedom not to have to settle the score in my life with other people. Because it's only when I sit at this table that I experience the freedom of forgiveness and it's only when I sit at this table that I can extend the freedom of forgiveness to others. You see, it's only when I sit here in this posture looking across the table at Jesus, the one who is the judge who died in my place, that I can begin, that I can even begin to wrap my arms around what Paul said in Ephesians 4. And what Paul said was this, be kind and compassionate to each other, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. Some of you this morning aren't free. Some of you are in a prison. Some of you have a poisonous root that's been growing in you for years. And this morning, the shepherd says this, quit running, quit rehearsing, quit seeking revenge. I want you to sit down and let me settle the score. Some of you have been in that prison, caged in, and your resentment has been building up for years because what you do is carry around all of the wrongs that others have done to you. You're killing yourself in the process. You're sabotaging every relationship that you have in the process. Here's what forgiveness is. We're going to just jump into this. Forgiveness is simply this. I choose to cancel the debt. I choose to interact with you no longer on the basis of your debt. I'm going to quit interacting with you as though I'm the judge, and I'm going to interact with you through the lens of the judge who became the Savior. Some of you are locked up this morning, and he says, I want you to sit down. Let me settle the score. Listen. Some of you are like, I will when they apologize. I'm going to tell you something. It's just hard. Quit waiting for the apology. Forgiveness takes one. Reconciliation takes two. Forgiveness takes one. At the cross, Jesus pays the price. God forgives our sins. When we say yes to Jesus, we're reconciled. At the cross, forgiveness takes one. Quit. They may never apologize. Some of you have a root of bitterness. Can I just be honest about this? Some of you, it's changed everything about you. It changes all of your relationships because you are angry at somebody who's dead already. They're not going to apologize. <laughs> They're gone. Some of you have, and I hate this, some of you are struggling because somebody well-meaning gave you some, something they read on a plaque somewhere, and that's this. You need to forgive and forget. <laughs> Can I just be honest with you and tell you this? It's like, I've done this long enough, and I have heard some horrifying stories in my office. Horrifying I can't imagine looking at a young gal sitting in my office telling me about all the things that he did to her when she was little, saying, you know, you need to forgive and forget. She ain't going to forget. And that's not even really what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is me choosing to forgive, even though I do remember. Forgiveness sometimes is an everyday choice. Forgiveness sometimes is me waking up and saying, I'm going to choose 
to forgive. Forgiveness doesn't mean the pain goes away. Forgiveness doesn't even mean the relationship has to go back to being the same. For some, it shouldn't. Forgiveness is a gift. Trust is earned over time. What it does mean is that you'll choose to live in light of the forgiveness you found in Jesus and allow the one who settled the score to settle their score. He's pretty good at it. When you sit at the table, you acknowledge two things, and then I need to go on. You acknowledge first the one across the table. Listen close to this. When I choose to sit at the table and let him settle the score, I acknowledge two things. One is I acknowledge he's just. He'll always do the right thing. Second, I acknowledge he's gracious. He allowed me to sit there. And so when I sit there, not only do I have freedom from all the stuff that's causing the chaos in my life, but all of a sudden that becomes the most powerful demonstration to the people around me, let alone the enemies, of the beauty and the power of the gospel. And so what Jesus would say is, I've settled their score at the cross, and maybe me sitting here and the peace they and the freedom they see in my life is the very thing that might be the invitation to the same table for that person. And that's hard for some of you to hear, and I'm okay with that being a struggle this morning. Because you're like, I don't want them to experience that. I get it. I, didn't, I told you it's hard. It's hard. But the truth is, because I get to experience it, it's something that I can extend. So then some of you would sit here this morning and say, okay, I get you, but it hurts. And I want to forgive, but what do I do about the pain? I love that. Psalm 23 says this, you what? Anoint my head with all. Why does it say that? Well, I bore you with these details, but Middle Eastern shepherds who would have been host to travelers and nomads and things like that would have provided oil. Would have provided oil so that they could have soothed their, their wounds that, that maybe they incurred during the journey. Oil would have been refreshing and reinvigorating because it had been the hot sun. It, it was kind of this, this healing thing that a guest would have felt. And so they would have given them all. What is the shepherd saying? He's saying, sit down and let me settle the score. And then he's saying this. I want you to write this down. He's saying, sit down and let me heal your hurt. He's saying, Dan, sit down. I know. I love how real the Bible is. Psalm 147.3 says this. He heals the brokenhearted and he bandages their wounds. He's saying forgiveness and healing happen at different time periods. Healing takes time. And he says, literally, I want you to sit down, let me heal your hurt. And he says, I anoint your head with oil. And and, and it makes me think several things. First, it makes me think when you jump into the Bible, it's like this this old idea of oil and what what does that symbolize? And I don't know, but I think I can make a case for there's times in the Bible when, when that seems to have a connection to the Holy Spirit's work in our life. Stay with me on this. So when I sit down and say yes to Jesus, and now I'm at the table, there's certain things that happen. And I think the all that, that he uses to bring healing might, might come about, about as the Spirit of God works in and through me. And how does he do that to bring healing? I think there's three things, more than that, three things. First is this. I, I, you ought to write these down. I need to let God in on my hurt. <laughs> Just stay with me on this. I, I need to, like I'm sitting here at the table and it's like the spirit of God inside and I need to, to let God in on it. I think the word prayer has become such a church word that we, we, we forget, what are we doing? 
I'm sitting at the table that I don't deserve to be at, and one of the blessings of it is I get to let God in on it. The problem is this. See if you can relate with me. There's sometimes I hurt so bad I don't know what to say. Raise your hand if you ever felt that way. I'm glad I'm with friendly company because I love what the Spirit of God does. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Aren't you glad about that? We don't know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. He's like, let me in on it. I, 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 I can't, I don't know. I, I don't have the right words. He's like, let me in on it. I can't pray like, just let me in on it. I, I think there's a second thing. He's like, let me in on your pain. And then, he, and then I think the shepherd, the king, the savior, the one sitting across the table says, listen to me through it. <laughs> The Bible doesn't ever sanitize the fact that we're going to face pain. In, in Psalm 119, he says, my soul is weary with sorrow. Like, 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 literally, I'm exhausted with sorrow. And then he says, strengthen me according to your word. <laughs> Love that. Like, in the middle of it, I don't got to come and say, hey, everything's cool. It's like, he's saying, you know, I am exhausted. I am so broken up over what's going on. And, and if you continue to read Psalm 119, he talks about how people are saying things and they're out for him and he keeps going back to, but I wanna listen to you. I wanna hear what you have to say. He's like, as you sit at the table, spirit of God lives inside. Let God in on it. Listen to God through it. Look here a second. And then recognize that around this table, around this table, I don't sit alone. I got a whole lot of brothers and sisters and as I'm going through it, I think one of the things the Spirit of God does and allows for me in my life as a follower of Christ is I need to lean on others. I need to lean into my brothers and lean into my sisters. I need help. Galatians 6 says, carry each other's burdens. 1 Thessalonians 5 says, help the weak, encourage the disheartened, be patient with everyone. Guys, don't we have a tendency, let's just be honest, don't we have a tendency when we're hurting to isolate? don't we? We have a tendency to isolate. So I'm going to, man, I don't know. Let me just talk to you, the other side of that coin. Some of you have grown up in church and, and, and sometimes this, our theology or church experience doesn't allow for people to hurt and struggle. And I love the fact that I can come to the table and, 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 and I can let God in on it. He's like, you can be honest with me. Well, I don't know what to say. <laughs> That's all right. And I can listen to him. What, do I got to act like everything's okay? No, in the middle of my sorrow, I'm going to pour the oil of your word, so to speak, over my heart and my wound. And then I look around the table and I'm like, wow, there's brothers and sisters I can lean into. See, here's what I know. And when it comes to healing, and you got to write these down, and then I'm gonna, I got to go to the last point. Healing takes time. You got to write that down somewhere. Some of you are in the middle of that. You just, it just, you like want to be on your feet emotionally and spiritually right now, and it just takes time. Second thing you need to write down is this. Healing leaves a, leaves a scar. And, and so I got a big old scar on my hand, and when you have a scar, you can remember one of two things. I can look at the scars in my life, and I can remember the hurt, or I can remember the healing. But then I want you to remember this. Healing takes time. It leaves a scar, and healing can help others. I love how 2 Corinthians 1 puts it. It says this. It says, All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is our merciful Father, source of all comfort. He comforts us in all of our troubles so that we can comfort others. 
when we're troubled, we'll be able to give them the same comfort God has given us. Some of you have been hurt, been through the healing. Listen to me. Don't, God wastes nothing. And some of your most profound impact you'll ever have on people this side of heaven will come from your deepest hurt. It says, you anoint my head with all. He says, sit down, let me settle the score. Sit down, let me heal your hurt. And then he says this, my cup overflows. That's interesting, isn't it? He says, my cup overflows. And I, I think about the source of some of our hurt sometimes, and then we're done. But sometimes my hurt comes because I expect, stay with me, I expect other people to fill my life in ways they can't nor were ever intended to fill them. So I get upset because my spouse and she doesn't, you know, or my boss, he doesn't give purpose and meaning in my life. I get upset and my expectations for them to fill my life in some sort of unrealistic way is a premeditated disappointment. And I think what the shepherd's saying is this, I'll settle the score, I'll heal your pain, I'll heal your hurt. And then he's like, and then I want you like to stay here. This picture is the relationship with Jesus because if you stay here, I'll fill your life. He says, sit down. Let me fill your life. Let me be the source of satisfaction. Let this relationship be what it is that fills your life even to the point of overflowing. Overflowing with what? He says in Romans 15, let's throw that up there. He says, may the God of hope fill you with all joy. Sounds good. I'd like to overflow with that. Peace, so that you may overflow with hope. He says, hey, sit down here. That, that, that's what it's going to First Thessalonians 3 says this. May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other. 2 Corinthians 8 says this. It says, in the midst of very severe trial, they're overflowing joy. I'd love that. <laughs> He's like, well, sit here. 2 Corinthians 9 says this. In the midst, he says, that this service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. It's interesting. You see, here's what I know. Some of us are hurting because we expected him or her or them to fill us in a way that only shepherd host Jesus can. It makes me think of interesting picture, and here's where I want to end, and then we're, we're going to be done. In the Middle East, there's custom that's interesting to me. You ever gone to somebody's house and wonder how long you should stay? By the way, if you haven't, you should, <laughs> okay? Let's reverse the question. You ever had somebody come to your house and wonder how long they're going to stay, right? Middle East kind of took care of that because what would happen is when you'd show up to their house, host would pour your glass full of water or wine. You'd sit and share fellowship together, enjoy time together, and let's say time passes and you drank all the wine or the water in your cup, the host would come and refill your cup as a way of saying, I'd love for you to continue to stay. When you drank that cup, if the host didn't come back with the pitcher, hint, hint, nudge, nudge, grab your hat and your coat, it's time to go. Don't miss this. Your host, Jesus, says, I'll fill your cup. If you'll keep coming to the table, I'll just keep pouring. And I'll just keep pouring. And I'll just keep pouring. 
and I'll just keep pouring. And all of a sudden, it's going to overflow, and it's going to overflow, and I'm not going to quit. Psalm 23 is not some nice psalm to be read at your funeral. It's fine if it is. Psalm 23 is the psalm that you need for the grit and the realness of what it is that you're walking through in your life. Because there are some people who hate you, there are some people who will hurt you, and there's some people who have it out for you. I'm going to ask you to do me a favor. I'm going to ask Aiden and his crew to come out and we're going to finish with a song. I'd love for everybody just to stay put. I know, I know I've taken some liberty today, and I'm fine with that. If, if, if we can just stay put for a minute. But I'd love for you to, to bow your heads maybe for a moment. You don't have to close your eyes. I just want you to get in a space where you can think, in, in a space where maybe the picture of those people that we talked about might come to your mind this morning. And it could be that you're here this morning and you're saying, man, I've been running from it, but it just keeps worse and worse and worse. I, I, I've been rehearsing it, and now I'm somebody I don't even recognize. Or maybe I've been looking for revenge because I thought it might bring satisfaction. And all it's done is it given evil control over you. And this morning the shepherd says, come, I've got a table for you. And the shepherd, the one who died in your place, absorbed your hurt, died in your place. And he said, the only place all that's going to make sense, the only place all that hurt, all that resentment, all that bitterness is going to make sense is in my presence at my table as you look across the table and you see me. He says, you can't do this on your own. You just can't. You won't. You can't. But with the shepherd, Jesus, it's the only place you can experience the freedom of forgiveness and it's the only place you'll ever have the power to extend it. And for some of you this morning, you need to sit there and say, oh Jesus, I need you. I need you. I need your help. I don't want to be this person. I don't want this root of bitterness. I don't want to be locked up in this jail. I need you. Some of you are feeling the pain of it and he says, I know, but you need me. Come sit at the table with me. I'll heal your hurt. I'll settle the score. I'll fill your life. Father, I'm so grateful this morning. There's a table smack dab in the presence of my enemies. And I'm so grateful this morning that across the table from me sits Jesus. And this morning we admit and we acknowledge that we need Jesus. Jesus.